to another edition of the Little Patients Big Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. I needed to give a little introduction today because the topic that we're going to address can be a little bit sensitive. As most of you know, I work in the state of Colorado, and we have some particular differences here compared to a lot of other states as far as our medical and recreational legalization. And a lot of the research that has come out on the unintended pediatric consequences of legalizing marijuana and cannabinoid products has come out of our state. So I asked a couple of experts that I know personally to come and talk with us today. Dr. George Sam Wang is a pediatric emergency medicine physician who works in the same emergency department as I do. And Dr. Matt Zuckerman is an adult emergency medicine physician who also runs the Talks Now podcast, which is a fantastic listen for anybody who hasn't gotten a hold of it yet. Both of these gentlemen are toxicologists who, in addition to their emergency department duties, work with the Rocky Mountain Poison Control Center. In particular, Sam has published a majority of the recent pediatric literature regarding unintentional pediatric exposures, the epidemiology of them, the clinical consequences. And in addition, we're going to get into the legal and research ramifications of some of the changing laws, as well as where things like mandatory reporting and child protective services fits into the whole mix. Lastly, before we get started, I need to have a huge thank you out to the Digital Scholarship Accelerator and Matt Zuckerman and Mike Overbeck for providing some recording space for this podcast, providing some additional mentorship and editing help. I would not have gotten any of this off the ground without them. We're just going to jump right into the interview start, and I will list in the show notes all of the articles that we're talking about because Sam references several publications of his throughout the interview today. So can one of you guys give us the just kind of the general rundown of the history of how we landed here as far as the regulations and, and like path towards legalization? Yeah. Um, you know, so marijuana actually in Colorado, it's back all the way to 2000. We allowed medical, you know, over 10 years ago, um, but I don't think we really saw an impact um, in our day-to-day lives in the Denver metro area in Colorado until about 20, 2009, 2010. Ogden memo came out, which was basically the Obama administration stating, you know, as long as people within their state abided to their state rules, the federal government wasn't really going to jump in, despite the federal government still classifying as a Schedule One substance. So after that, in our state, we had a huge increase in um, people applying for medical marijuana cards um, to be used for various indications. Um, And then, obviously, as most people know, we legalized um, officially for sale in the beginning of 2014 uh, retail and recreational marijuana in Colorado. Um, And that brought in a pretty big uh, marijuana industry into the states, um, uh, millions of sales of marijuana. And since then, across the country, currently, last I checked, I think it's 29 states, including D.C., have legalized marijuana for medical indications. And now we have eight states that have now passed retail recreational marijuana laws. And so before 2010, the setup was the the states had legalized some medical marijuana, but there was still some concern that that you could be prosecuted on a federal level. And so that's why that memo was important. Yeah. And so I think both from a patient, uh, a physician, you know, a physician writing these recommendations, um, the dispensaries, there was still concern that it wasn't, you know, quote unquote, accepted enough. Um, and after that Ogden memo came out, um, I think there was more of a liberalization and, uh, you know, 
I'm not going to get in trouble if I go ahead and, and start selling and, and providing marijuana for people for medical indications. Right. Yeah. The, the flip side, though, is I think that that's essentially prosecutorial discretion. The, the federal government says this is still totally legal, but we're not going to enforce this law if you behave. And by behave, a part of that memo was we don't want to see tons of marijuana sneaking outside of Colorado to surrounding states. We don't want to see tons of kids uh, getting into marijuana. Uh, this is not a free-for-all pass. This is a, if you play nice, we'll let you continue type of thing. And there have still been some raids and things like that, which surprises people. And it didn't address, not that we have to dive in here, but it didn't address banking, which is very difficult for these um, agencies because by definition, it's still federally illegal. And most large banks don't like to get involved in illegal practices. Uh, there was concern that with new administration, the fact that this was literally just an attorney general saying, we're not going to enforce it, there was a lot of question as to how uh, viable that was going to be going onwards. And there's still really very little legal protection. And so honestly, if you're smoking marijuana or get, get caught using marijuana at work, you really don't have a lot of legal protections in terms of your employer because it's still federally illegal. Yeah. Um, so we're in this weird legal limbo right now. Right? Yeah. And the federal government at any time could come in and just shut everyone down and just say, this is, we're enforcing everything from a federal standpoint and, um, you know, we're going to take over. Gotcha. You bring up, Matt, you bring up the, one of the parts of behaving is that they didn't really want to see a significant increase in uh, unintended pediatric usage. Um, so uh, that's part of what I wanted to talk about today. When the recreational laws were coming out, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a fairly strong stance against any recreational uh, legalization of, of marijuana. And their concerns were, were primarily for the unintended consequences on the pediatric population. So Sam published a number of articles on this. I'm wondering if you could kind of give us an, an overview of what the, what the concerns were, and then we'll talk about what's actually happened. Yeah. So, you know, the unintended consequences of marijuana in the pediatric population actually stems everything from the peri-prenatal population, pregnancy, into the unintentional exposures, and then um, into, into the adolescent age group. What I've published mostly is on um, the unintended consequences on the ingestions or exposure standpoint. And we published a few papers. We initially started the case series of some children coming into our emergency department at Children's who were intoxicated mostly from lethargy, um, ataxia, and they found out to be marijuana exposed. And then we looked at kind of uh, the trend of marijuana exposures, both in our hospital in, in Denver Metro, but also National Poison Center calls for marijuana exposures in young children. And we saw both in our state a bump after um, basically the Ogden memo came out in unintentional exposures, and then also nationwide, we saw that states that have allowed some sort of marijuana legislation, the annual calls and the rates of calls have statistically gone up as opposed to states that don't allow any marijuana whatsoever. And that makes sense. Whenever you, I right. mean, essentially this is post-marketing surveillance in a way. Right. You know, I think um, as many people know in the kind of poisoning and toxicology world, uh, increased availability in the home typically results in some increase in unintentional exposures in children. It's just if it's in the home and it's not, uh, you know, properly stored, a child can get into it, whatever, whatever it is, whether it's a household product, over-the-counter medication, prescription pharmaceutical, or an illicit substance. 
Do we have any idea of what those numbers look like as far as, you know, like per capita unintentional exposures? So in our in our state, we saw uh, an increase from just a couple of ER visits for marijuana unintentional exposures in young children in 2009 to we saw 16 in 2015. And poison center calls went from less than 10 in 2009 to over 45 in 2015. And so, you know, I think a couple things about these numbers kind of jump at, at you. You know, the trend that we saw over the, that seven-year time period definitely increased, both in our ER visits at our hospital, but also annual calls at our regional poison center. The numbers aren't huge. You know, we're talking millions of annual calls in general to our regional poison centers across the country. Um, over half of those are in children. Um, so in general, when you look at these numbers and you compare to other things that kids get into, the numbers are still small. However, I think you have to keep a couple things in mind when you think of that and you think about availability. So everyone's got bleach at home. Everyone's got a cleaning product at home. Everyone's got acetaminophen. Everyone's got ibuprofen. Not everyone has marijuana, even in states that legalize marijuana. It's still not like a common household thing. And so even though, yes, availability has increased in a state that has legalized marijuana for medical purposes or retail recreational use, it's still not completely commonplace. You know, people, and not every person has it in their home, even close to like alcohol or beer, cigarettes. So I think, yes, increased availability, not to a huge extent. No, these numbers aren't huge, but the trend is definitely there. And we've seen some sick children. You know, we've seen kids intubated um, for toxicity from this. And so um, I think we don't want to wait till the numbers are huge. We don't want to wait till a very, very bad outcome happens before we you know, take these trends uh, into consideration. And, and you bring up a really good point um, that the numbers aren't huge, but this is a natural experiment, right? We have made a major change in public policy and, and, dis and distribution of this. And, uh, and, so, um, and so it makes sense to watch it and watch what happens. Um, I think that uh, we're all suffering from the opioid epidemic right now. And if you had early data that said, you know, with the increased utilization of chronic opiates, we're seeing more exposures, that might have been an early warning sign. And so it's always good when you have a change of public policy to watch it. Um, did you have any other interpretation other than just increased availability for the increase in uh, reporting? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, as... Um Many listeners probably know with the marijuana industry comes a lot of different products. And so it's not just joints anymore. It's a lot of higher concentrated products, waxes, butter, shatters, resins, higher concentrated uh, things people vape. There's also edible products. So food, basically food infused with THC in them, and they can be pretty high concentrated THC in them. And so kids obviously will gravitate towards things like candies and desserts. And these products look exactly the same as non-infused products. And, and we've seen a number of children getting into these and getting um, pretty sick off them. So I think it's a probably a little combination of availability, um, the, the product themselves. And then, you know, prior to us reporting these things, I think it, it was kind of commonplace people to say, no one can get sick on marijuana. It just doesn't happen. And then, you know, based on this, on these studies, a lot of public education, I think people now are aware that yes, if a child gets into marijuana, they can get sick. And we've had plenty of instances where parents come in with this history that yes, I left my marijuana edible out. I think my kid might've gotten them and I knew they could get sick and they'll come in. So I think there's some public awareness and education that has come with that as well. I mean, this was really new to me until I started digging into this uh, and I hadn't thought about it that 
most of the other common pediatric poisons that we talk about, you know, household chemicals or Tylenol, ibuprofen, they're, they're not specifically intended to look palatable or to look like food, whereas some of the marijuana products are. So, you know, the, the kids are sort of enticed to, to want to have them. Um, and then particularly some of the liquid forms can get really concentrated. And so it would be hard to maybe have that amount of ingestion from smoking. But when you have a liquid form and, and a kid can swallow some, you can get a pretty high dose just from a, a small amount. No, that's, that's, I think that's an important point. Um, and similar to, you know, liquid detergents, right? You have detergent, kids don't drink much. It doesn't taste that good. You start putting it in a candy looking little pod, kids start sucking on it and then it just shoots into their throat and just changing the formulation can totally change the exposure. I also think, and, um, I'm curious how much of the increased reporting, especially with poison control or other things, is also a little more increased honesty. I think previously I've definitely seen people where I suspected a drug exposure, but because it was illicit and because there was concern about uh, 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 police action and legal action, they wouldn't come in and say, my kid got into my marijuana. But I think now that it's quote unquote legal, that has given people a little bit more permission to be a little more open and honest about it, but certainly increasing exposures also. Yeah, in our study, we actually looked at that uh, particular thing. Um, you know, are people more forthcoming? And the, the history is more forthcoming later as, as years progress, because I think people, A, understood about the potential severity, but they also feel more comfortable in a state that's legalized. And so, um, you know, I think that history is more uh, likely to be there from the get-go rather than my child's not acting right, I can't wake him up. We all know that a child who's lethargic, the differential is huge and you start doing a pretty big workup. But if you had the exact history, especially here in, in Denver in our hospital, people now are aware of what that looks like. Um, and that can definitely limit some of the invasive procedures or, or provide more cost-effective care as well. Since I got a pair of toxicologists sitting here captive with me, I'm wondering if you guys can talk to us a little bit about like the, the pathology and physiology of, of marijuana ingestion. So what are we looking for to happen? Do we have any idea of a per kilo concentration of ingestion that generally leads to problems you know, versus ones that don't, or are we not there yet? Yeah, some of uh, my pharmacy colleagues here on the campus and at Children's Hospital Colorado looked at a subset of population of children who came into our hospital with marijuana intoxication. Granted, it's a very small number, and the dose estimate is based on the, you know, the estimated THC in whatever product they got into and approximately how much they received. They were able to best approximate that if a child got into three mg per kilo of THC, they were observed. If they got into seven milligrams per kilo of THC, they had enough symptoms that were admitted to the floor. And 13 milligrams per kilo of THC, those children ended up in the intensive care unit. About five minutes ago, you spewed through about seven different forms of marijuana, yes. which I'm sure you're incredibly familiar with uh, yeah. professionally. But uh, would you just mind for some of our listeners who don't live in a marijuana-rich state, just quickly kind of- I'll admit I, I didn't understand, understand what half of those were. <laughs> he yeah. was not cool in high school. <laughs> so, you know, your, your traditional dried bud, dried flowers, what most people smoke in a joint or a pipe or a bong. And- that in of itself actually changed quite a bit. Um, you know, even just 10 years ago, concentrations of those flowers and plants could be anywhere from 5 15%. Nowadays, they have crossbred 
Um, cultivators have been very sophisticated in what they're trying to grow, and they've been able to grow much more concentrated flowers and plants. And I think the last I heard, the average concentration in Colorado um, was something like 20 to 30% in just the, the dried plant material alone. And you're talking about THC. THC, yep. The psychoactive cannabinoid in, in marijuana or cannabis. Now with the marijuana industry, they've um, actually created many different products. These, what they're called, um, waxes, shatters, butters. They call those because that's what they look like. It looks like wax. It looks like like a, a clear, like, you know, candied glass almost. Um, some looks like earwax for back of, back, lack of better terms, or, or candle <laughs> wax. And basically these are concentrated resins that they use various ex- extraction chemicals or techniques to pull out um, more concentrated oils and resins from the plant. Um, these things uh, then are either infused in the food products or they, they in of themselves are used on joints or bongs to kind of increase the strength. Um, sometimes it's called dabbing, or they'll actually use them themselves with oils and resins to vape them. And so when you vape them, you parasolize this, the, you know, the vapor and, and you have a concentrated product, or you can just ingest them because they're, you know, the, a, lot, a lot of them are heat activated already and they ingest them and they can get intoxicated. And then edible products typically have some sort of oil resin that's been extracted, put in them. Um, anywhere from, you know, 5, 10 milligrams of THC in our state up to 100 milligrams for retail um, recreational products. And so that's kind of the quick, broad sweep of some of these products that are now available. And and the edible products are quite popular. You know, I think the last uh, media report of the revenue generated from edible products is almost half now of the marijuana industry. So, So people are actually, you know, buying and using these edible products pretty frequently. But what's different is, and in, in most people who live in our state, habitual users kind of know the difference. They know with edible products, the time for it to have a peak psychoactive effect can be delayed. You smoke 5, 10, 15 minutes, you get your psychoactive effect. It's usually a pretty quick peak, usually a fairly quick decline. With edible products, the absorption, the kinetics, it can actually take two to four hours before you get a peak effect. And then after that, it can actually last for a couple hours. And so um, I think initially... You know, Matt can probably speak to this more because they probably probably saw this in more of the adult ERs. Visitors, even people within our state who were were just starting to use these new marijuana products, they had no idea what an edible product would do. They take it. They didn't see an effect in five, ten minutes. They take more. And they kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, stack their dose. And by the time they absorbed all their edible product, they've inadvertently, you know, overdosed on their edible product, have a very dysphoric reaction and come to the ER. It's a bad trip. Yeah, it's a yeah, bad trip. Bad and trip. it's and that's the big thing. I think there's this perception that uh, marijuana is a natural plant. It grows from the ground, so it's got to be good for you. And we're just using natural stuff. But this isn't your grandparents' marijuana, and these aren't your grandparents' pot brownies. I mean, so as with a lot of things, you're seeing um, uh, agricultural practices that are used to um, increase the yield or type of THC or sometimes more cannabidiol and stuff in the plants, and that's affecting it. And realistically, also realize that as a botanical, marijuana has hundreds of different chemicals in it. And we generally only talk about THC and um, and CBD, but there's others in it too. And then when you extract that, you are also further altering uh, the types of psychoactive effects that you can have from that. Um, and it's almost like, I liken it to, uh, if I, I drive a car, I drive a car every day, 
Uh, and if I went to the Indy 500, I'm like, I could drive. It's fine. It's just like driving a car. But driving at Indy is a totally different beast. Uh, and so we get these people who have maybe smoked a joint back home, but then they come to Colorado, the Indy 500 of marijuana, and they start using just like they think they can use back home and they don't know it. And uh, they end up having some really bad trips. So definitely in the adult side, we have been seeing some marijuana tourists. Um, and I think that uh, definitely public education, but also just dumb dosing effects. Uh, I, I, so essentially here, oftentimes a unit dose, Sam, is about 10, right? Yeah. So legally in our states, the serving size, as they say, is 10 milligrams of THC, which that, that quote unquote serving size and, you know, uh, term is a little confusing, especially with the edible products. If you think about, you get a, a snack of, you know, let's say some gummy candy or a bag of chips, Usually there's like one or two servings in there. You take a few handfuls, you know, you're eating it to be somewhat satiated, but also, you know, the flavor and you like it. So you take a few. What's interesting with edibles is that that transition or, you know, that correlation's not there. So it could be one gummy candy is a serving size or one cookie or five chips. The correlation of how you approach eating a marijuana food edible versus just the snack it's not there. It's not the same. And, and 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 sometimes there's some obvious design defects. I like they have the 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 perforated almost Hershey bar type uh, edibles, and that might have eight or ten squares. But you're supposed to do one square as a serving size. But I don't know about you. I've never eaten one square of a Hershey bar, and so there's often. Uh, I think that the industry wants to avoid overexposure, wants to avoid overdose. Um, uh, at the same time, the industry is very very sensitive to claims of danger or uh, claims of unsafety, uh, partially because it has been such a political issue for a long time, you know, like reefer madness. Uh, for a long time, you'd see videos and professional people saying, if you smoke one joint, your head will explode and you'll jump out of a window. Uh, there's that Helen Hunt video that's great. But, uh, and so they're tr they can be a little suspicious, uh, rightly so, but like you would never, you would never design uh, a pharmaceutical in a chocolate bar that has eight doses that you're supposed to eat one eighth of the chocolate bar. Right. Yeah. We, I mean, we, we specifically do the, the dosing sizes of other medications so that, that they're a little bit more obvious how much you're supposed to, to take. So is that 10 milligram, uh, sort of standard serving size, is that an industry standard or is that regulated at the state level? That's regulated at our state level. Um, so Every state's different. Um, some states are more strict. Some states don't even have a, a serving size. Um, but that's what our state has um, regulated. We, you know, right after legalization in 2014, they noticed some of these uh, increase in these inadvertent overdoses. And so there was actually kind of an emergency panel decision-making group that I was part of. And basically, we had to figure out how to make these safer um, based on Kinetic studies, 10 milligrams actually didn't seem like to be a huge, um, huge dose. However, the what you guys were talking about of having like a half of a chocolate, you know, um, like a half of a half of a bar or like eight pieces of a cookie, eight serving sizes and one cookie being um, okay for people to figure out, um, we decided was obviously not – uh, good for the consumer. And so there are now rules that people have to make serving sizes um, intuitive to the consumer. So, you know, one gummy candy, one cookie. Um, if you have a scored chocolate bar, each score is a serving size. And so it's not, it's not something for a consumer to 
you know, for them difficult to, to figure out or, or not intuitive. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the other regulations that have that have come out. Some of those were from that emergency panel, um, a lot of which were intended to kind of prevent unintentional pediatric exposures. Yeah, in Colorado, we've um, done a pretty good job at doing a lot of uh, preventative measures. And toxicology preventive measures have gone back as early as 1950s uh, with child-persistent packaging. Um, and, and basically, we felt like that was an intuitive uh, implementation for marijuana products. And so in our state in Colorado, we require uh, marijuana products to be in child-resistant packaging. And when we say resistant packaging has to be similar packaging approved by the Consumer Product and Safety Commission. It can't be just a package that says child-resistant. Um, there's do- these dose limitations. So 10 milligrams uh, serving size, 100, mig- 100 milligram THC limitations in a whole package. Although with medical products, you can actually go higher than that. Um, they have to be in opaque packaging, warning labels. There can't be mass marketing campaigns. We obviously can't sell anyone less than 21. And a lot of these regulations have, to be, have, have actually been picked up by other states like Washington, Oregon. Um, and, uh, you know, we hope some of these preventative measures um, can help prevent some of these accidental or unintentional ingestions. And, you know, it's not childproof. It's just not, you know... No child can get into them. Yeah, I but, say, if, if any of you guys have interacted with kids, they're little Houdinis. So yeah. this, is, this is really just trying to make it harder. There, that, there's nothing right. that they can't get their Especially little Especially when there's into. a brownie somewhere. Yes, yes, absolutely. So it's more preventative, but I think the message has to also be clear that safe storage is, is very, really, really important. Obviously, you don't want to store an edible product next to a normal non-infused product in your pantry without you know any packaging or, or prevention measures. Right, and so uh, kids, you know, we, we'll see time of onset of symptoms anywhere from within an hour, you know, can actually be quite quick if they ingest quite a large amount to a couple hours later. Usually the most common thing we see is like, child just wasn't acting right, seemed kind of sleepy, so we let him go down for a nap. We were trying to wake him up because he was sleeping longer, really, really difficult to rouse, wouldn't stand up, try to walk, couldn't balance himself, so we brought him in. That's probably the most common story we hear with these uh, pediatric unintentional exposures. So Sam, one of the things that I wanted to ask specifically of you, since we deal with this a lot in the pediatric ER, is is what do we do with these exposures as far as our responsibilities as a mandatory reporter? And and this isn't this doesn't just come up with with marijuana. This comes up all the time with us for. Um, kid gets into parents' medications that seems to have been secured inappropriately, or uh, you know, little toddler comes in and they, it turns out that they're actually drunk. And, yeah. and then what what do we do with that? And when does that cross into abuse or neglect? And do we have any guidance for that as far as marijuana products? You know, I think in general, uh, you know, our duty for these young children, regardless of the substance, is trying to get at you know, what the intent or the environment's like. And so if we find out the family is leaving uh, medications out, not storing them properly, um, obviously if intentionally giving to the children when it's not medically indicated, um, these are things that we as healthcare providers need to look out for these children for. And so that's regardless of what it is, a pharmaceutical, alcohol, marijuana. It does get into a tricky um line when you talk about marijuana, because it's still federally scheduled one. Um, so no, technically no medical indications, totally illegal, but our state has legalized it. And so if you look at it from that perspective, let's say a parent comes in and says, oh my God, I accidentally let it out. Oh my gosh, my, you know, my child got into it, brings them in, totally forthcoming. How is that different from, 
you know, I left the scene a minute for now by accident. They got into it. Right. You know, I think that's, that's a tricky part. Um, I think you can always err on the side of caution and, and discuss it and with your social worker and kind of figure out what you guys need to do. I know it's not a straightforward process, especially in our state. Every county actually does something different. There's no consistency across the counties on how they deal with it. Um, the, other, the other thing goes for when an investigation happens in the household. You know, they find marijuana plants in the home, smells like marijuana smoke, children live there, but technically, what if they're abiding by all the rules and regulations in our state, right? They have, they're within the realm of the legal grow limits. They are not using in public, but they're using in the house. Um, you know, are the parents intoxicated or not in the presence of the child, whether at home or in the emergency department? I think all these things play a factor and, and it's a difficult, um, it's a, it's a di very difficult, not straightforward. Yeah, and, and to my knowledge, there is not uh, specific guidance from any of our child protection services about when to call and, and when not to call. So I imagine it's probably for us different, even provider to provider, about about what you call and what you don't for. So yeah, um, and if you, even you look at our paper we published in JAMA Pediatrics, the number of times we called social work on these children early on, almost everybody. Past couple of years. It's like, I think it's like 50, 60% we were calling social work on these cases. So the attitudes for us have certainly changed as well. And that may be multifactorial, parents admitting to it, you know, find out they're storing it properly, um, thinking it's state legal, so why do I need to report it? So even our health care attitudes have changed. Um, you know, I think if there's any question, discussion with your social worker is always a good good, uh, reasonable decision. Um, but it's, it's not straightforward. Yeah. And, and, and really also remembering that, that your phone call, if you end up either your social worker or you calling the, the county social services, that, that that not is not in and of itself, you, you placing some sort of blame, but, but really if you have any concern, uh, it can also, um, make there be a record too, if there's any question about recurrent exposures or, or whether you're not sure. Um, I try to remind a lot of the folks, since we deal with the pediatric abuse cases a lot, that, that you're really not the, the person who's in enforcing all of these things. Y your job is, is reporting and then it's, it's up to somebody else to decide who's, whose fault it is or whether, whether there is blame. And at the end of the day, I think don't it's think it's don't be stupid. I think I, I've seen a lot of people who, when it got legalized, said, "Oh, that means it's good and totally safe and has no side effects." Well, that's that's not true. And so, if a kid got into a prescription medication because uh, grandma's uh, uh, clonidine is left out everywhere and is stored in the child's room, uh, or there's multiple cases of exposure, then I think you can have concern for inappropriate storage of potentially dangerous substances, regardless of what the substance is. And so at the end of the day, don't be stupid. If you're worried that something was done inappropriately, contact someone. And especially with kids, I mean, I just always feel like if you're not sure, call. And worst right. case, they'll say, no, that's totally fine, or they'll get involved. Because um, like you said, it's not your job to convict anyone, and it's not your job to judge. It's just your job to make sure that the world is safer. Right. And in a, in a number of these cases, what they'll end up saying is we'll follow up with them via phone and, and schedule a, a home visit. You know, So it, it's a little different than a lot of the other reporting that we do. So this gets us into the, another one of the big places that I actually wanted to ask about today. Um, and this this may not apply everywhere, particularly places where, where there is no state legalization, but what are the, the research concerns about this? We've got this substance that's becoming increasingly utilized. It's it's available and it's around, um, but we don't have a ton of data on particularly 
you know, pediatrics or breastfeeding? And, and how do we actually go about obtaining that data? That's true. Yeah, Sam, when you take a four-year-old and you administer marijuana in your lab, <laughs> how do you go about doing that? How did the IRB feel very, about very that? Very carefully. Uh, no, you know, I, you bring up a really, really good point. You know, as, um, you know, there's been a lot of research on marijuana. Um, if you look up PubMed and marijuana, there's, there's thousands of articles. But we're in a new time, and not only from a legalization standpoint, but from the product standpoint. All, a lot of the studies that have been done prior to today are lower potency, what's, what's quote-unquote federally available from a research standpoint, which is totally different than the marijuana available today. Today's marijuana is uh, much more sophisticated, higher concentration, different um, crossbreeding between different species of marijuana, um, different ways of taking and ingesting or exposing yourself to marijuana. And so um, potentially all those studies don't really apply to the marijuana that's been used today. What? So we obviously need really good research on how marijuana not only affects public health in general, um, but how it influences a lot of different um, medical or disease states in people both young and old. The discrepancy between federal and state legislation continues to be an issue. And so federally, again, still Schedule One, state legalization. Most academic centers rely on a lot of federal money, both for Medicaid, Medicare, <clears throat> NIH funding, federal government funding for grants. And so a lot of universities are very conservative on how they approach how marijuana research is done. And basically, they, they err on the side of caution and... Um, abide to federal laws. And so a lot of the research done is very observational. Um, and and that's to avoid any conflict with federal laws and the concern that the feds may pull funding um, if they don't abide by those standards. And so, you know, people can apply to use federally available marijuana, but that, that marijuana that's available is pretty lower, much lower in potency and not specifically what people use. So a lot of people use other cannabinoids for other things now. One of the more popular things in pediatrics is CBD or cannabidiol and seizures. That's, there's no federally available cannabidiol product that people can use to study. Um, there is a pharmaceutical product out there right now undergoing clinical trials, and they just published a recent study this year evaluating its use in Gervais syndrome, which is a seizure syndrome in children. Um, but but there's a lot of dis good discordance there, and that, that makes research or good research difficult. And there's a lot of interest in in that use. You know, I, we certainly see patients that move to Colorado specifically for improved seizure control, and there are a handful of mostly case series papers that that look at patients who were having multiple seizures a day, usually Dravet syndrome or Lennox Gastaut, and um, how and a number of them have either complete resolution of their seizures or substantial decrease in their number per day, uh, at least, and this is self-reported, once they start the CBD oil. So there's a lot of interest on whether this actually is, is useful, but it's, it's, as you say, it's hard to go get the real data. And anyone who's ever done research knows, I mean, there can be a world of difference between an observational study and, and a properly done randomized control study. I mean, essentially for an observational study, you're having to rely on accuracy of labeling, which was a big concern when we got marijuana products, because a lot of the labs that did testing well were legally forbidden from testing recreational marijuana products. So you had that issue and that's a whole forensic issue. Um, there is quality control issues. You have a lot of people who just decided to start making marijuana products because uh, they 
there's a lot of entrepreneurialism going on. Uh, entrepreneurialism and and medical uh, uh, treatments are not always the best thing. And so you could get some product variability from batch to batch. Uh, you're relying on voluntary reporting of usage and someone saying, oh yeah, this is how often I use and this is the product I use, not that product. And we've all known people who have said, I take acetaminophen or Tylenol every day and it turns out they're taking ibuprofen. Uh, and so there's there's a lot more pitfalls in an observational study you can see. It's definitely a, a, an accurate reflection of what you're seeing in Colorado, but it might not be an accurate reflection of what you're going to see in other states that might have specific caps or different usage patterns. All right. So Matt and Sam, as a wrap up today, do you have any take home points for us specifically as ER providers regarding marijuana exposure in kids? You know, I think the there's a, there's a couple points that I think that are important to take home for healthcare providers. I think you got to know the symptoms and what to look for. Um, in small children, they're not similar to young adults or even older adults who use marijuana. You, you know, the, they have more significant symptoms. That includes lethargy, ataxia, nystagmus. Um, and sometimes kids are severe enough to get intubated. So I think you have to recognize if a child presents in those ways, especially if you're in a state that has allowed marijuana for medical purposes or retail recreational marijuana, you have to ask about marijuana in the home. Um, and then I think you have to, you know, trust in the fact that your clinical exam and your history are consistent with that. I think um, we see a lot of kids in the earlier time period, several years ago, who would receive lumbar puncture, CT scans, pretty extensive workups, even when their urine drug screen came back positive for marijuana, even our healthcare profession was thinking there's no way this could be marijuana. It's got to be something else. And I think if the history presents itself, high concentrated product, high amount of edible product, a small child, symptoms are consistent, that um, it definitely can be due to marijuana exposure. And I think you bring up a good point too, and that's one little test. So no specific testing in terms of chemistries or we haven't found specific like um, renal failure or electrolyte abnormalities with uh, pediatric marijuana exposures, but trust the urine drug screen. I yeah. hate the urine drug screen. Correct. I hate it so much. But for THC specifically, it is a very good screen. It is very sensitive. It is very specific. And also specifically in pediatrics. I think, you know, we see in adults, you know, it's, you know, we see positive THC screens all the time, right? I used it on Monday. I came on Friday. I used it last week. And, you know, I think that doesn't necessarily in an adult say I just used. In a child, a two-year-old who's lethargic, ataxic, who has positive THC in their urine, A, they shouldn't have THC in their urine, period, which is actually a, a pretty decent uh, screen screening assay for marijuana exposure. And, um, and B, their symptoms correlate with the exposure. So I think that's the kind of caveat, you know, when we're talking about urine drug screens for marijuana in children. All right, folks, there you have it. A little bit longer podcast than we like to have, but there was just so much good information in there that we couldn't cut it down. I want to thank Matt and Sam for being with us to chat about this important topic. We are seeing increasing numbers of exposures, uh, particularly in places where recreational marijuana use has become legal. You can find Matt's podcast under Talks Now. I really want to thank Matt Zuckerman and Dr. Mike Overbeck from the Digital Scholarship Accelerator for making this particular podcast possible. They provided some extra recording space and some additional editing help particularly as I'm getting launched in this new venture. So they've been an incredible help. I'm Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can also email any feedback, any questions, any suggestions to littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com.
I'm Jason Woods, and this has been the Little Big Med Podcast. Thank you. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 